The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Dr. Tyler Jacks is the president of an organization called Breakthrough Cancer. Breakthrough Cancer empowers outstanding researchers and physicians to both intercept and find cures for the deadliest cancers by stimulating radical collaboration. Welcome to HealthGig. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, we want to start by just asking you a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, and then we're going to get into our conversation about breakthrough cancer. Well, I grew up in Massachusetts. I've spent most of my life in Massachusetts. I, I currently I work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and I also serve as president of Breakthrough Cancer. We'll talk a lot more about that. I spent most of my life in this state. I spent about five years out in California getting my PhD some years ago. And uh, I've been doing cancer research more or less since college. So I'm uh -huh. a lifer. I'm a lifer in this business and uh, happy to talk to you about those experiences as well. How did you start this journey in college? What sparked it? There were a couple of things that contributed. Firstly, I got turned on to the subject of what we call molecular biology. That's sort of understanding how DNA works and how you can manipulate DNA and do powerful things. And that was really coming into its own when I was in college, and I sort of caught the bug based on a course that I took in that subject. And then fortunately for me, directly afterward, the professor of that course offered me a spot to work in his laboratory. So I did that and I stayed in his lab working for a couple of years and sort of got my hands and feet wet doing real bench work, which I found that I enjoyed doing and I was good at. Uh, it allowed me to sort of express my creativity and in different ways and, and also make small contributions at least to understanding how cells work and ultimately maybe how cancer works. Another course that I took as an undergraduate really focused me on what turned out to be the coming era of what we call cancer genetics, and we can talk a bit more about that. I had a lecture from a professor who's now a colleague of mine. I just saw him about an hour ago, as a matter of fact. He presented work now back, gosh, 40 years ago that provided the first insight into how normal cells convert to cancer cells. And and that work identified a gene that was altered in the development of cancer cells. It was the first time we'd seen the molecular basis of cancer unfold so clearly. And that got me very excited. And so from there, I applied to graduate school and have been doing this work ever since. So talk to us about breakthrough cancer. What is breakthrough cancer? When did it start? And what is it? Breakthrough cancer is a foundation that began... In 2021, so we're approaching our third anniversary as a foundation, we are a funder of cancer research on one level, but much more than that, we are trying to create a new approach to cancer research that emphasizes the importance of teamwork and the ability to bring individual researchers from different institutions together into teams 
to work very effectively to do things that they couldn't do if they were working as individuals. We're not the first to think about that. There are quite a few examples of team-based science, but we're approaching it in a different way. We're quite involved at Breakthrough Cancer in helping to form the teams and sort of shape the research ideas, working with the investigators and with our scientific advisory board to really kind of hone the idea to as best we can get to perfection, and then work with the investigators continuously, even once we funded them, to facilitate their discoveries and their work in the clinic, to do things that are actually, it turns out, rather hard to do when you're trying to collaborate across institutions. We're lucky that we have five outstanding partner institutions with which we work. Two here in my area, MIT is one of them, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is another. Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and MD Anderson Cancer Center. So those five outstanding institutions are all partners of Breakthrough Cancer, and many of the investigators who form our teams are from those institutions. We have some investigators who also come from other institutions, but the bulk of our team work comes from those institutions. When you say investigators, are they doctors? Are they the PhDs? Or who are the investigators? Yeah, it's a term that we use to cover a lot of ground. On the one hand, they are bench researchers. They might be professors who are bench researchers or the trainees of those investigators, graduate students and postdocs. But we also have a number of clinicians who are part of these teams. We have engineers who are part of these teams. We have bioinformatics experts, computational types. So it's quite diverse. So I use it as a generic term to really indicate the people who are doing the work that we fund. What are the cancers that you focus on? Right now, we've focused on four, and they are pancreas cancer, glioblastoma, which is a cancer of the brain, ovarian cancer, and acute myelogenous leukemia. And we chose those four in part because they are very challenging cancer diagnoses for which progress has been slow. There has been progress in all four, but honestly, there's been better progress for other types of cancer. So we chose them because they're difficult. And we thought that this approach might allow us to make progress where others have uh, struggled. Trisha and I are very familiar with pancreas cancer. Trisha's husband died of pancreas oh, cancer, sorry to hear that. was treated down at MD Anderson. What are some of the things that you're discovering in some of these diseases? We have eight teams that we funded so far. Seven of those teams are focused on one of those four cancers that I just discussed. And there's an eighth team which is focused entirely on new approaches using computation and artificial intelligence, sort of cuts across all of our disease team labs. I'll give you a few highlights of the things that we're doing, and I, maybe I'll start with pancreas cancer. We have two teams that we fund in pancreas cancer. Both of these, by the way, we work closely with another foundation called the Lustgarten Foundation, which is a big funder of, of pancreas cancer. cancer yeah. yeah, they've been a partner, a terrific partner of ours, actually. Those two teams are taking somewhat different approaches. On the one hand, one team is trying to use the most sophisticated what we call molecular profiling methods. That is, can you understand in absolute detail the alterations that are taking place within the cancer cells as well as the cells that surround the cancer cells in a tumor with respect to the molecules that they produce and how they interact with each other and how they change as a function of the treatment that you're trying to give. 
We call this type of an approach within our foundation science in patients. These are patient specimens that are derived from clinical trials that we're interrogating through this project using the most sophisticated scientific approaches that we have at hand today. I say it that way because unfortunately, very often, clinical trials are performed and information is essentially left on the table because the depth of analysis that I just described is, is just never done. The system isn't set up to allow that to be done or there isn't funding to allow that to be done. And we feel like that's a real missed opportunity. So we have funded a team to do a deep, deep dive in trying to understand how pancreas cancer cells respond to therapy. They're looking today at one particular clinical trial. Over time, they'll look at multiple clinical trials. And we hope to be able to learn in ways that have not been possible before by using these very powerful approaches. And then there's a second team that is focused on a really exciting emerging opportunity in pancreas cancer that you might have heard about or read about. The alteration occurs most commonly in pancreas cancer is a mutation, an alteration in the DNA of a gene called KRAS, K-R-A-S. We've known that it occurs in more than 90% of pancreas cancer patients, so virtually everybody. We've known that fact for 20 or 30 years, but we haven't been able to do anything about it. Fortunately, through the work of academic groups, but more pharmaceutical companies, there are now an emerging class of drugs that target the alterations in the KRAS encoded proteins. Therefore, we now have an opportunity to really knock out <laughs> these cancer cells based on their, what we hope to be their Achilles heel. Since they all have this alteration, we can safely assume that they rely on it. And if we have a, an inhibitor, maybe it would show good effect. It's very early days. There's very little data so far in pancreas cancer, but I would say this early signs are hopeful. And therefore, we've invested in a team to push this very fast, as fast as we can. We all sort of feel like these KRAS inhibitors will have an effect, but quite possibly they won't be curative all by themselves. And, and I say that based on other experience we have in the field. And so part of this team's effort will also be focused on, well, what else do you need to do from a treatment perspective? What sort of combinations do you need to develop? that will allow a much bigger effect and a much more durable effect. So that's what that team is uh, focused on, but it's super exciting. That is really exciting. And you're right, there just hasn't been a whole lot. Like you said, they knew about the KRAS gene, but nobody knew what to do. So this is really exciting. Right. But I think you also bring up a good point. And what you said is that you don't think there's going to be one single bullet that's going to take especially pancreatic cancer out. You're saying it's going to be maybe a mixture of different approaches? Yeah, I think that you can think of that in two ways, and there's probably many more ways to think about it. But firstly, different patients' cancers arise through, in a sense, different routes. So yes, KRAS is a common change, but as the cancers develop, they pick up other alterations, which make each patient's cancer slightly different. And so I don't think there will be a one-size-fits-all. And this relates a little bit to that first project that I mentioned. Until you know with real precision, how different cancers differ from each other, you really won't have a good handle on what exactly will work for a given patient. So that's part of the goal. The other thing I would say here is that there's a very clear emergence of the role of the immune system 
in recognizing and effectively treating cancer. It's all of our belief that in this project and many others, some combination of targeting the alterations in the cancer cell on the one hand and stimulating the immune system on the other will be the most potent combination. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. You know, what role do you see immunotherapy playing in this? And actually, it's almost like immunotherapy is the base, right? Yeah. And then what can we do on top? Just to that point, I'm a big supporter of cancer immunotherapy. We work on it in my laboratory. We fund a lot of that work in breakthrough cancer as well. In pancreas cancer in particular, the immunotherapies that have been tested to date have not worked very well. I know. We're beginning to understand why, although we don't have a complete understanding. But again, like with the KRAS story, there's recent data that's been published that is very encouraging. In particular, a group at Memorial Sloan Kettering has published a paper based on a study, an early stage study, but nonetheless, that shows that a targeted cancer vaccine in patients with pancreas cancer seems to have a big effect. That gives us confidence that if we can tailor the right sort of immunotherapy for pancreas cancer, it could be quite helpful. So I think it will come down to some combination, KRAS inhibitors, immune stimulation, probably other things in certain cases too. But I'm hopeful. I've been working on pancreas cancer for more than 20 years. Oh, wow. And uh, so I've seen the field evolve. And, and honestly, there's just been too little progress. We've understood a lot more. The, the basic science has gone great. But the translation of those findings to the benefit of patients has not been what we'd hoped it would be. But that's changing now. And I think the next five to 10 years, we will see a significant shift in the outlook for those patients. That would be wonderful. So with your partners, for example, with pancreas cancer, is MD Anderson the lead partner in that program or does that all partners contribute? How does that work? It's a good question. And for the moment, as we got started, remember, we're still quite young. The first teams that we launched were launched only about a year and a half ago. When we began, we wanted to really emphasize the importance of teamwork and taking the team nature of the research seriously. And as such, we didn't stipulate, but we were happy to see that as the teams formed, they had contributors from all five of the institutions. So all of our teams do have contributions from all five. It is the case that some of the projects are led by one of the institutions with contributions from others, but everybody participates. And this is one of the ways that we as an organization at Breakthrough Cancer can help because those inter-institutional collaborations, while they sound easy, <laughs> turn out to be challenging. It requires some greasing of the wheels and some motivation and problem solving, which we can do. The partners are willing. It's not a problem at that level, but there are challenges, administrative, policy, legal, all sorts of things that need to get worked through. We provide that. So we use a term that relates to breakthrough cancer. We call it radical collaboration. It's sort of our, our slogan now. And that radical collaboration, you might think, first relates to the researchers collaborating, and on one level it does, but it also is the institutions collaborating and our role as a foundation collaborating with both of those parties. We talked about industry and the role that they play. They, too, are a collaborator. This network of collaboration needs to function optimally for us to deliver as soon as possible, you know, with a sense of urgency to patients. So everybody's got a role to play. 
And that's such an important piece, collaborating. And as you said, there's other organizations that do this, right? That they're into teams and all that. Um, but you're saying the difference with you guys is that you're focusing on that, on making it easy for the investigators to talk to each other, to share information, which is what's making these teams a little bit different than maybe some others. Yeah, I think that's right. There's many forms that that takes. We all suffered through COVID, but one of the benefits of COVID was that we realized that we could interact at a distance, like we're interacting today at a distance. And using virtual meetings has allowed our teams, even though they're located across the country, to meet regularly. They meet every couple of weeks and share data. That represents a form of this facilitated collaboration. We organize all of that. We obviously bring people together physically, too, This problem-solving role that I mentioned is critically important. And likewise, the assistance that we provide in the early phase of team formation and project development, I think, is really important. Foundations tend not to do that. The funders often put out a call for applications and they say to the research community, give us your idea. We do that at one level, but we also say, well, that is a good idea, but have you thought about it this way? Might you think about this particular approach or this particular investigator? We're not dictating, but we're facilitating. And I think the product that we get at the end of that is richer as a consequence. How about getting the discoveries to the patients? I would say ours is very much of a patient-focused organization. We have seven disease teams. Each of those disease teams has a clinical trial that's either already ongoing as a function of our funding or has a clinical trial in the works and will be launched in the next several months. So this is not basic research for the sake of knowledge generation, although that is certainly important. It is research geared towards getting the discoveries to patients and to patient testing as rapidly as possible. You want to make good choices because you want the best treatments to be available to patients, not just any treatment, just to say that you did a clinical trial. But we are funding very sort of cutting-edge work where we feel very good about the fact that it's being tested in patients. So that is very critical to the mission of Breakthrough Cancer. It's a patient-focused organization that also believes in the power of science. I think that's right. Like something has to be done differently. And it sounds like the egos and all the things with the different hospitals is something you're saying isn't an issue now. Have you guys figured that out? It's a dangerous question you've just asked me. We've recognized as an organization, I think everybody quite recognizes that individuals have allegiances to their laboratories, to their institutions, to their careers, and all of those are understandable. This approach really does require you, as a funded investigator on one of our teams, to prioritize the project first. It's about the science. It's about the science to the patient. And while those other things are important, and we can't deny that they're important, To my mind, they come second to what we're trying to do here. And that does require a little bit of subjugation of ego and allegiance and so forth. So I don't think it's a problem to say it out loud. I think it's important. And especially given the economics of hospitals right now, I mean, it's tough, right? I mean, it's not an easy time both that way and also the job is so demanding. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And the institutions with which they work, these are hospitals, mostly MIT We don't have a cancer hospital, but these are challenging times, and and they're investing a lot of their personnel resources and, and other resources in making this work. So I give them a great deal of credit, actually, for participating at that level. And the people that we fund are some of the busiest people you'll ever meet, and we need them to stay focused on the mission at hand. 
And sometimes that's easier than others, but we have a tremendous cadre of people that we work with. I'll just, you didn't ask me this, but I'll just say that one thing that we've noticed and we're really encouraged by is that some of our more junior investigators, so younger scientists, are the most engaged. They're the ones who really, maybe they have more time to commit, but they also have an ethos that is consistent with the importance of what we're trying to do together, as opposed to what's going to necessarily benefit me as an individual. And that's really quite reassuring to see. It's really exciting to hear you say that you think that we really, after you've been doing this for 20 years, especially in pancreas, that you really think that this time maybe it will be moving the needle? None of us like predicting timelines in in this business because there's been too many false promises made over the years. But with the progress that I've mentioned here related to KRAS inhibitors, as well as the vaccine studies, as well as other immune stimulating studies that I'm aware of, we happen to be involved in one. Uh, I think there's, there's strong reason to believe that treatments will improve soon. And we may not get to, you know, cures for all in pancreas cancer. That might be too, too lofty Mm -hmm. a goal, but extended lifespan, being able to live with the disease as opposed to dying from the disease. I think that's really within reach. What else gives you hope? You've got the young researchers in there committed and this hopeful news about pancreas cancer. What else? I think from the perspective of breakthrough cancer, I have a number of things that I think we are beginning to understand that will make a difference in the longer term. We think a lot about where cancer comes from, for example, and that brings up the questions of how can you prevent cancer from forming? How can you block the early stages of cancer before it reaches a really life-threatening stage? And there's a general awareness that the earlier you can find the disease, the better. We have a couple of teams that we're funding that are focused on that question, understanding early stage cancer. We have a team looking at ovarian cancer in this regard, which will provide us with a very rich understanding of how that disease arises and what we might be able to do about it. One thing that you or your listeners may not know is that most ovarian cancers and most of the life-threatening ovarian cancers don't arise in the ovary. They arise in the fallopian tube, which is a tube that connects the ovary to the uterus. Cancer cells initiate there, and then they move to the ovary, which is why they've been called ovarian cancer. They actually start in the fallopian tube. And that represents an opportunity, actually. If you think about the removal of fallopian tubes at the appropriate time, that can actually reduce cancer risk. Tubal ligation, which is a procedure that's used for birth control, leaves the tubes behind. But if you did removal instead of ligation, that would actually reduce a woman's risk of ovarian cancer because the site of origin of the cancer would be gone. So one of our teams is focused on that. It's very much of a public awareness and public health focused effort that they're working through. There's a remarkable lack of understanding of what I just told you out there, including in the medical community. And we think that uh, it's important for doctors and individuals to understand these details so that at the appropriate time, they can make the appropriate informed decisions. Wow, that really is interesting. And as you said, we can kind of all get that. You know what I mean? We can get that as long as the information gets to us. Information is the key and making good decisions based on the information. You asked about what I'm excited for. I would highlight another of our teams here in glioblastoma. We talked about pancreas cancer earlier, bad diagnosis. Glioblastoma is another bad diagnosis, as you probably know. Patients do not do well. Unfortunately, the long-term survival for this disease is less than 10%. Many patients pass away within a year after their first diagnosis. 
And here again, clinical trials have not moved the needle. So we have a funded team which is in the middle of a clinical trial to answer your earlier question, what about the patients? It's a team that's in a clinical trial taking a novel approach, which is to assess the effect of the treatment continuously by taking samples from the tumor, not once, not twice, but actually six times over the course of the treatment. We call this longitudinal sampling. And you might think, wow, that would be challenging because we're talking about the brain. And that's what everybody thought. But actually, this team has succeeded in demonstrating it can be done. It can be done safely. And patients are actually quite willing to sign up for a treatment that actually might provide more valuable information as they are undergoing their treatment. So this is early days, but it could be that this approach of what we call longitudinal sampling will become a paradigm for studying the effects of treatments for this really bad disease, hopefully, ultimately, leading to better ways to treat it. You know, on your website, you talk about some of the people that influenced you to start breakout cancer. And one that stood out to door and I was Hunter Goodwin. What a lovely story. I think the reason that's important is we've all been touched by somebody who's been touched with cancer or passed. And it's just so awesome to see what can be done in their memory. Let me tell you the Goodwin story more broadly, and I'll come to Hunter. Breakthrough Cancer exists because of the generosity of the Goodwin family. The Goodwins had been funders of the five cancer centers that are partners of Breakthrough Cancer, and they had been funding these centers largely independently. Some years ago, they came to the leadership of the different institutions and said, it makes sense to us that you could go further faster if you work together. That led to a long series of discussions, and we considered how that might happen, and eventually we decided to create Breakthrough Cancer as a way to bring the institutions together in a novel concept. And the Goodwins then committed significant funding to allow us to get started. Around that same time, sadly, their son, Hunter, and so I was referring to Bill and Alice Goodwin just then, their son, Hunter, was diagnosed with colon cancer, which had already progressed. And he was uh, facing, again, a very tough diagnosis. I had met him before, but I didn't get to know him until his cancer diagnosis. And we spent a fair bit of time together. And I tried to be helpful in terms of where he sought his care and so forth. But more importantly, he tried to be helpful to us as we thought about what breakthrough cancer could be and how we could structure the organization, how we could make it distinctive, what would matter in terms of how we could eventually be successful. And so he actually had a big influence on our thinking. Sadly, he passed away just as we were going to launch Breakthrough Cancer. And as he was putting his estate plans together, he too made a significant contribution to the funding of Breakthrough Cancer. So collectively, the Goodwin family, and it includes, by the way, Hunter's brother and sisters, have made a $250 million commitment to this effort. It's a remarkable, remarkably generous act on the part of the family as a whole, and in particular, with respect to Hunter, who was unfortunately experiencing in real time the challenges that so many cancer patients face. And what an honor that you can continue this and and move it along as fast as you're moving it, you know? So if someone were to get one of these diseases that you focus on, what would be your recommendation to them? First of all, I should tell you that I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD scientist, although I get asked a lot about medical advice. I'm always careful. My general advice is get information. That's always a good thing. 
Your own oncologist can provide some of that information, and that might be all you need. For individuals who are able to access more information through foundations, we talked about Lustgarten before. Lustgarten is a great source of information for individuals with pancreas cancer, and there are other disease-oriented foundations that are very helpful to patients. I always recommend that if people are concerned, that they seek and get second opinions to the extent that they can access cancer centers, especially those supported by the National Cancer Institute, of which there are 68, I believe, located across the country. So hopefully everybody has access to one that's in their general neighborhood. In general, the folks that are associated with the cancer treatment programs at those cancer centers are plugged into the latest information. They have the best access to the clinical trials that are ongoing. More information and information from credible, reliable sources like the cancer centers, I think is a great roadmap. For these five hospitals that you work with, I guess how often are you yourself working with these different teams? Are you in more of an administrative kind of role? Yeah, me personally. Well, I have overlapping research interests with a couple of these teams. So I'm engaged almost like a scientific colleague. I don't receive funding from the team, from the uh, foundation in my laboratory, but I engage with the teams on a regular basis. I'm conversant with the work that they do. I sit in on their team lab meetings whenever I can and hear about the latest research that they're doing. We host teams at our offices in Cambridge, and so I get to see firsthand in those meetings. And then we have an annual summit where we bring team members from all across our portfolio together, and that represents another great opportunity, not only to get updated, which we do, but also to engage with the teams and sort of help to promote the culture of collaboration that we're trying to instill that we talked about before. I know you touched on this earlier, but for prevention and discussion of prevention, is that something you all are talking about much? Prevention can be defined in lots of different ways. We sometimes use the term primary prevention, which for which you might think about, you know, uh, smoking cessation as a good example. We do not fund in that area directly. I'm not saying we wouldn't in the future, but that's not been a focus for us. Prevention can also include this phase of the disease where something has happened and that something increases the risk that a patient will develop cancer in time. And we definitely are interested in that phase. And here I'll give you another example. We talked about acute myelogenous leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia earlier. It turns out that as we get older, we, all of us, we accumulate altered cells in our blood. We actually accumulate altered cells throughout our body, we now know but it's certainly true in the blood. These altered cells can carry changes, mutations, that increase one's risk of getting AML, this disease. Folks who have this form of, we call it clonal hematopoiesis, have about an 11-fold increased risk of developing AML. Right now, there are no efforts that I know of, I'm sure there are some that I don't know of, but we're funding an effort, let's put it that way, to try to intercept this clonal hematopoiesis phenomenon, which affects a significant portion, 10% or more, depending on age, to intercept the disease process from that stage, which is not yet cancer, to the development of cancer, so to prevent it from progressing. So that part of prevention, we're very much focused on. Yeah, it just seems like that's great because it does feel like it is part of the equation when you do talk about, about There's no cancer. There's no question. And, mm -hmm. and you know, your question relates to the broader goal, which we certainly believe in, of shifting the time frame of diagnosis to an earlier stage. Because when cancer 
or precancer is in an earlier stage, it's just more easily managed. Such important work, really. And it's just so heartwarming to hear that you are working so diligently for these cancers that don't seem to get the attention. Well, they do get the attention, but the wrong kind of attention. (laughs) So it's great to hear about this work. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to following Breakthrough Cancer and seeing all the great things you'll be doing. Well, we appreciate your interest and your encouragement. I think, as I said earlier, you know, we're sort of all in this together. Cancer is a disease that sadly affects all families. We're hopeful that this approach and with the funding that we have, that we can make a difference and uh, change what are now very challenging diagnoses to manageable diseases, controllable diseases, and even diseases that we can cure. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.